Momentarily for class solidarity Cash circulating, give the masses back its currency Greed from elites, oligarchs stay fed Deep state, faith fed, everybody break bread Racism, homophobia, sexism, religion And it's melted by we live in time to build a new system Unionize labor rights, highlight the issue Talking heads left is best, the saga continues Continues. The No Miki Show Hello, welcome to The No Miki Show I am Nomiki Khans. It is Friday, October 22nd, and this is Bijou. And Bijou is my emotional support animal right now because, or not, <laughs> Bijou, you have to get better at that. I didn't train you very well. <laughs> Bijou is my emotional support animal right now because it, I, I, I'm not kidding, actually. Like, this has gotten to the point of I, no way out. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know personally. I'm, you know, I know people put these shows on because they want to uh, have some sort of strategy or hope or camaraderie in fighting the monopolies out there and conservatives and, of course, moderates. But I really don't have a strategy for you right now. And so if you do have a small animal that you love, I definitely recommend you grab it and you hold it and you anything that you love in life, just embrace it because we are in uncharted territory. Um, and I don't say that. It's not like moderates haven't been holding up progress for decades. It's not like, you know, this is a new strategy on their part. It's that we suddenly have a little bit of power as progressives. We suddenly have congressional members. We have a few senators. We've even moved people to our side. Senator Schumer, for God's sakes, just endorsed India Walton in Buffalo for mayor. But what we don't have is some way to outmaneuver them. They still have the power. And so what they've brilliantly done, and I'm putting them all together right now at this point, what they brilliantly seem to have done is trick the public and senators and Congress members and progressive groups into thinking that they are going to move towards progress. It's like a publicity campaign for the establishment into thinking that, making the public think that they care about them. But at the end of the day, here we are. Here we are. This whole entire year has been about you know, oh, we can finally spend the money. Joe Biden finally gets it. He has to do something to respond uh, to the crises of income inequality and joblessness and COVID. And of course, our infrastructure, which has been crumbling for decades, and our, our minimum wage, which hasn't been risen, remember that, for decades. And the fact that we have a healthcare crisis. All of these things seem to be top priorities for the Biden administration as he took office. And 10, 10 months ago. These were all things that we campaigned on in opposition to Trump. Now, I still believe, believe it or not, that yes, Joe Biden is better than Trump, partly because Trump is moving us to the right. Biden is following the right. But the problem right now is that the numbers that we started with are gone. The numbers that we negotiated down to are gone. And the numbers that we negotiated down to again are gone. And what number are we at again now? We are at the number that Joe Manchin proposed on day one. Is Joe Manchin some master negotiator? Is it that Joe Manchin is the only person in the Senate on the Democratic side who, who doesn't believe 
in infrastructure? Is, is Kirsten Cinema just echoing it? No, of course not. Because, as we all know, at the end of the day, this is Biden's bill. And if Biden cared so much about this bill, he would be campaigning around the country for it. If he cared about his legacy, if there is a legacy, because clearly they don't seem to understand that climate change is a thing. They haven't read the science. If he cared so much, he would have rallies in every sing- in front of every decrepit bridge. He would be down in Puerto Rico, for instance. There's that one bridge. Oh, my goodness. I will never forget this. After Hurricane Maria, there was an entire community for an entire month that was cut off from civilization, not, not to mention power like the rest of the island, cut off from civilization because there was a bridge that collapsed. A bridge that collapsed. And it took two weeks for anybody to even realize that this town was cut off from civilization because nobody could get out of the town. Nobody could get out of the town, get onto the roads so that they could get basic medicine, so the elderly could get hospital care. And finally, a helicopter discovered this town. That town is America right now. There are countless stories like that. And Joe Biden should be showing up in those towns across the country, in those cities across this, the country, and pointing those to the, those bridges and saying, these are jobs. This is climate change, and these are jobs. And these two things need to go together. And they can go together. <clears throat> West Virginia has had historic floods, historic floods in the last 10 years. It's not that Joe Manchin doesn't know this. He has a Senate office. He has constituents who call for services. Of course he knows this. And it's not that it's just Joe Manchin. But if they're going to use Joe Manchin as their scapegoat, they got to do a better job at acting. And if they're not going to do anything to publicly pressure Joe Manchin, then we have to publicly pressure Senator Schumer and Joe Biden. Because this is not a game. And they're playing this like they are stuck in 1987 and they're doing whatever they can behind the scenes and creating whatever show out front to make us feel like we actually fought for something so that, so that Senator Sanders can go home and say, I tried. So that Elizabeth Warren, Senator Warren can go home and say, I tried. So that Pramila Jayapal, Congresswoman Jayapal can go home and say, I tried. You know what trying is, and I'm saying this to our progressive leaders at this point, because we love you, we adore you, and we appreciate all the work you've done, but you got to stop using the same tactics you have used to fight the establishment for the last 30 years in this situation. Now that there is power, the tactics have to shift. You have the power to bring the masses. If you could have rallies of 30,000 people during your presidential campaign, how about you bring back those rallies and you take it to the White House lawn? How about you take it to West Virginia? You take it to Arizona. Like I said, you take it to a bridge that's falling down. I don't think it's actually going to sabotage as you might feel what's happening behind closed doors. I don't think that because you actually have the power. This is the power you have over them. You have no other leverage. You're not in the majority. You're not in the majority of the Democratic caucus. This is the power you as progressives have. The people. So show the people. All right, we're going to be talking a lot more about this today. Uh, we have a wonderful show. This is Fem Friday, as you all know. Fem Friday is a very important day because, believe, did you know this? We are the only show 
on the internet that does this. Only show that focuses on having all female voices on a show once a week. And we often talk about issues that uh, relate to society. Isn't that crazy that women can go on TV and talk about issues that relate to society and not be catty? It's just shocking. Like, I mean, I only know of one other show uh, or a couple other shows that that have all women talking about politics, but they always seem to fight with each other. And I'm just, you know, maybe women can do other things. And that's what we're doing here on Fem Friday. I don't know if you get my point. Uh, we talked about this on the Majority Report this week, and I stand by it that it's the system. And if you, yeah, representation matters. And so if you don't see a different version of something, you may not know that that version exists. So what we are doing on Fem Friday is uh, something radical, radical. Women have ideas and they're going to talk about ideas that relate to them and to other people. And they're not going to do it while trying to cut each other's heads off. Crazy. All right. We have a wonderful show today. We'll be right back after this break. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. You have to understand that no one puts their children in a boat unless the water is safer from the, than the land. No one burns their palms under trains, beneath carriages. No one spends days and nights in the stomach of a truck feeding on newspaper unless the miles traveled mean something more than the journey. No one crawls under fences. No one wants to be beaten, pitied. No one chooses refugee camps or strip searches where your body is left aching, or prison, because prison is safer than a city on fire. And one prison guard in the night is better than a truckload of men who look like your father. That was a poem called Home by Warson Shire. Our next guest is joining us today to talk about uh, refugees and, and specifically how they're portrayed in the media. Uh, Dr. Jillian Jacqueline is a lecturer in democracy and justice studies at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. Uh, Dr. Jillian Jacqueline, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Nomi Key. So um, I'm I'm thrilled that you've invited me and also that um, you started off with such, I think, a meaningful and image capturing home for um, your listeners and your audience, because I think it really did capture um, the real tragedy and complexity of migrant experiences and the reasons why people, right, decide to leave their homelands. Often um, people, the American public, thinks of people coming to the U.S. Um, in search of um, this perfect image of um, what America sort of means in a global imagination and why that while that is often a draw for people um, to migrate to the United States, that's um, not the context that we're dealing with right now and thinking about why um, Afghani refugees are coming to the U.S. and why other waves um, of migrants have come here. So I'm really interested in talking about about this and and I don't know if you have questions for me, um, but I'm happy to talk about whatever it is you think we should. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it's fascinating to me because, um, so I, my, my entire existence and I, I discovered this poem prior to, to, uh, just yesterday actually, but, but not in anticipation of our interview. I just stumbled across it and, um, immediately what hit me was my family's experience and my grandparents on my mother's side, um, were refugees from, uh, from 
political ref- refugees for my grandfather in particular from uh, southern Albania in a, in a green uh, an area that was Greek right on the border of Greece and literally like knowing my family's story I mean this is it's not just that I know that they're refugees I've heard these stories for generations I've uh, for generations for years um, for decades but as I've gotten older and learned more about their actual history and the political history of what happened it's added more context to this to the point where it's it's um like i always knew the stories of of you know my grandmother would say okay well we had a in the middle of the night in the middle of the winter um you know we had to take the whole entire family she was 19 at the time she had to carry you know five of the most important things that they owned including you know a piece of jewelry that was really like hidden in very mysterious ways um through the mountains in the winter time as it was snowing in the middle of the night and not knowing if they were going to make it um, over those mountains, which, you know, took, I think, like 15 hours or something um, to get through. And my grandfather had a very similar story. But the difference is I learned much, 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 much later in my life um, as he was nearing his death that my grandfather was put on a list and had to escape that day. And there was no time to plan. Um and he left his mother and his two sisters who were later put in um, workers' camps. And I, I, I'm telling the story because I think it's important to tell the story. It's not just, oh, I come from a family of refugees. It's that through telling the story of what my grandparents went through and through their telling that story to me, there's a deeper understanding. For me, I can't, I, can't, I, I, I can't look at what's happening at the border right now without having empathy. And I wonder, just through, through the landscape of the media today, I mean, so much of our country is the migrant story, is a refugee story, is a migrant story, is an immigration story legal or otherwise. Why has this just somehow separated from the media's interpretation? I mean, because it is, it's, it's in our DNA, it just seems so strange to me that we can have this antagonistic experience like in the media when the people who are relaying this often come from these stories, come from these experiences. How did this go wrong? Wow, this is such, this is the question, um, and you really hit it on the dot. Um, why are media representations so overshadowing of migrant stories and refugee stories when indeed um, we sit right on American Indian land, but the vast majority of people who live in the United States, right, have come from these migrant and refugee experiences that you're discussing, which often were very traumatic, right, and not well-planned. Um, and not expected, right? So why and in what context did our media come to portray um, refugees in sort of this um, possibly negative light? So I think that one, um, let's kind of like reel back a little bit. I'm trying to get myself to reel back because there are so many different contexts to talk about this from. So in my own work, um, I do a lot of immigration and migration history. I'm trained as a late 19th, 20th century historian. And so we can't right look at um, the history of the United States without talking about refugees and migrants. And so um, certainly the advent of media representations goes way back to um, the Civil War era with the advent of newspapers, right, and the spreading um, of media and gossip and, and so on um, through the paper the paper trail. Um, fast forward quite a bit, right? We have um, TV, uh, TV um, and now social media 
which um, gives greater access to so many people with, with like independent media. It's like this important one that we can get um, different information from. But the vast majority of the American public um, still looks to big media outlets, um, often controlled and owned by groups of people that are sharing um, similar messages and their their popular representations. And so what do I mean by that? So for instance, in 1980, we had the Mario Boatlift, which brought um, several thousand, dozens of thousands of people um, to the United States from Cuba. And, um, and it was from the very onset represented as um, the Castro administration emptying um, Cuba of criminals and sending them to the United States. This is in the particular Cold War context of the era, right? And so it's important, as you said, to contextualize what's going on in the particular political and economic climate, both in the sending country or nation state, but also within the United States, right? And that's particular depending upon where you are at any particular moment. So in the Cuban context in 1980, the migrants who came, so we had um, at least 12,000 Cuban refugees come to Wisconsin, where is, which is where I am, um, and then they were scattered to different refugee camps throughout the United States, right? As you indicated, no one hopes to bring their children into what many have, have called prisons, right? I mean, really detention camps are not places that people often want to go. Um, and in the, the Cuban refugee case in 1980, for instance, Fort McCoy, which is where we're housing Afghani refugees right now, was not um, a lovely place. And it's not because of the employees per se or the content. This is a chaotic context, right? So as you indicated, your grandfather found out the day before, right, that he was going to need to leave, that he was on a list, that he was in danger, that his family could be in danger, and he needed to leave. And that's the case in a lot of migrant stories and a lot of refugee stories. And certainly the case for Cuban refugees in 1980 and for Afghani refugees right now, and also in the case of Central America, and a lot of El Salvador, Salvadorian refugees and Guatemalan refugees who literally feel like they have no choice but to leave. So it's important, right, to note that this there's national media representations, they influence local media representations, and so on and so forth. Um, so let's, let's, let's talk about just like the history of how... Um, migrants are depicted in this country. I mean, has it always been the case that the media, there's been some other that's coming and uh, whether it's the Irish or the Italians or uh, the Japanese or, uh, you know, in the case of, of the 80s, any, any, anybody who had any affiliation with the, the you know, the Cold War countries um, to today, you know, uh, the, Donald Trump's rhetoric. Um, I mean, what has this? I, it, it must have always existed. It just seems much more pronounced now. Yeah, that's such an important question, and indeed, um, there has always been an issue with xenophobia and racism since the inception of the United States as a nation, um, and that very much shapes popular media representations, um, particular economic climates 
um, the economic context is really influential. Um, and we can talk about that, but there always have been counter narratives as well. Right. So Mm -hmm. as you're indicating, there have been news sources like this one, um, local, um, newspapers, um, more sort of, uh, often left-leaning types of news media that has had um, a different story. So like in my own work, um, I discuss popular narratives and then counter-narratives to try to tease apart um, the realities of migrants um, coming to Wisconsin in 1980. Um, That would be the case now, like just yesterday I was going through um, different media representations of Afghani refugees right now. And already Um, There's a case where um, there was an alleged sexual assault in Montana um, where supposedly it was an Afghani refugee um, who is being accused of sexually assaulting um, a white American woman. And now uh, the state of Montana, Hmm. and who's the state in this case, right? The public Right. at large, is asking, is calling for a halt on bringing any Afghani refugees to the state of Montana. All because of this one situation in which the Afghani was, the Afghan was the victim. No, the... Um, the I'm sorry, I'm sorry. The, came out wrong. Yes, the sorry. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Right. And, and when, um, and in the, in, the, in the interview, so this is important, right? And I think... an important takeaway from this is we need to be critical readers and we need Mm -hmm. to read and listen to more multiple sources. And I'm sure that you say that you, you know, purport this to your, to your listeners and your viewers. But um, if you even read in between the lines of the different stories that are coming out about this case, one, we should certainly take sexual assault very seriously. Mm -hmm. We need to, um, and so it's not to say anything about the validity of um, the victim's statement or what have you, but even within the lines of the story, the, um, the Afghani refugee um, indicates that he did indeed um, participate in sexual activities with this woman, um, that he, but that it was consensual. Um, and so their stories are conflicting. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, this is obviously a very sensitive and like important topic and like should always be, but it's important to think about two contexts of criminality. So we're asking like how the history of how long has this been going on? How long has media been shaping refugees and migrants as criminals since the inception of the nation? It's always very racialized. It depends on the sending nation and, um, the American public at largest perception of the particular group of refugees in the particular historical moment. Um, I mean, it's, it, I think what's so shocking about this is, is say this were, you know, uh, it's, it's alleged, but say, say this were true or we don't know for sure. So let's make that very clear. Um, but say it were. Okay. And, and, and that, that, okay. That's a, that this happens in society it is not something that is completely, you know, it, 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 it's it, it's not like refugees are are the only perpetrators of of, of rape. I mean, it, I mean, this is just this fantastical, like like media. Um, the, the messaging is is it's straight out of Donald Trump's. You know, they're coming here, they're criminals, they're going after your daughters. I mean, 
this is an old tool. I mean, they did this with Puerto Rican community in New York. They did. I mean, uh, the Japanese community. We just had somebody on a couple of days ago to talk about the internment camps and the messaging that was put, you know, thrown out then. And and I don't understand why we keep falling for it as a society, and we don't just put our foot down and say this is not this is not the case. And and yet, most Americans don't even believe this. I, I mean, do they? Do they fall for these, or is it is it sort of some, something that like is like they you just there's a drop in your mind and it creates this context for a debate. No one actually believes these things, but now we're all kind of biased because we've been hearing it over and over. So we're seeing refugees in a different way, even if we don't buy into these um, these sort of narratives. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes total sense, and I think that you captured it completely, which is. One, what does the logical sort of um, person say to themselves? Well, certainly uh, we had a massive Me Too movement and still do in the United States. We know that um, sexual assault is rampant, um, that people of all genders and um, sexual identities experience sexual assault and perpetrators come from all different backgrounds, right? And communities. And so why would this one um, alleged instance, whether it occurred or not, and it's awful if it did, and it's really sad that this is um, coming out in this way, why would this story then be so profoundly shaping narratives? Um, And I will say that when I ask people about the Mario Boatlift that are around, let's say that, um, because it actually happened like four years before I was born. So, um, but my parents were adults and, um, they both, when I ask them, when I ask anyone that um, the baby boomer era, they will say, oh, that's when Castro sent all those criminals to the U.S. And that that messaging keeps right. repeating itself. And it really doesn't seem to be going away. And I think like what you're indicating is so important, which is that we have to continue to talk about um, xenophobia, right? Fear of of others and also deeply inherent racism mm-hmm. that is really shaping these narratives. Um, it's creating implicit bias, essentially, for, for you know, whether or not you, you, people recognize exactly what's going on. I mean, I look back at some of the stuff that's written about Puerto Ricans. Um, I'm doing a documentary there, and it's shocking to see some of the newspaper clippings from 30 years ago about, you know, what what folks said about Puerto Ricans and and Puerto Rican women in particular um, in the mainstream press in the States 30 years ago, as if, not to mention, as if they were not part of the U.S. on top of it. <laughs> I mean, there's so many layers to that. Um, so it's, 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 it's strange. I mean, I'm sure that, you know, 30 years from now, if we're all uh, alive and well, and if climate change hasn't, you know, e- eaten the world up, um, we'll be looking at Donald Trump's speech and saying, how could that happen when at the same time you had this Me, Me Too movement, when you, you know, you had the George Floyd protests, how could you have this person in power who is shaping the narratives on every single media station and the debates, framing the debates? Um, how could this exist and this exist at the same time? And so, I mean, you're, you're studying media. How was it that in, in, in the early eighties? I mean, yes, there was an, there was alternative media, but the narrative is being crafted by the extremists. At the same time, there are these movements to counter them, but for some reason, it just keeps shifting. We keep having to respond to the narrative crafted by extremists. 
Wow, that is such an important question. I think it, I mean, it really comes down to the reality of money, right? And who has the power and influence to to shape these narratives. Also, we do have to recognize that ourselves as consumers, um, that we are historical agents as well. And that when we consume media, the types of media that we consume um, influence the reproduction of that type of media, right? So it's not just that media is shaping what we think, but what we think shapes what we see, um, right, on television and in news media as well. Of course, then with that layer of who has the power and authority to shape narratives. And I'm so happy that you brought up Black Lives Matter because I'm actually teaching a course right now called Exploring Race and Crime in Television, Media, and Film. And we've taught, we started out by talking um, about the BLM movement and um, looking at different media representations. And um, I had a student after class, um, which I so appreciate, very confused um, and not sure about how to interact with their family, learning all of this like uh, very radical and um, controversial information. And so we talked about it for a while. And then I asked her, I was like, I guess I'm just confused as well because I don't understand what is controversial about Black Lives Mattering. Like to me, that should just be like humanity and common sense. And the reality that these movements are occurring goes back to what you indicated about through your poem, through the poem that you read, was that like people don't choose to protest in the streets and risk their lives and identities and livelihood um, because something is fake, right? And that's where the, the Trump administration and this messaging of fake news, well, now we're talking about it. Like a lot of news media representations create, right, um, sensationalized representations of things, but the, those sensationalized represent, representations of things are often and most often negative, which is so interesting when we think about um, our access to media outlets like this one. Well, and do we have to do a better job of 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 calling out? I mean, I think this is happening in a lot of ways, whether it's divesting or or calling out because of lack of representation in the media. But do we have to do a better job of calling out these companies that own them? I mean, we, you talk about the sort of like feedback loop the algorithms of this, the, the tech world, I mean, there's no more extreme feedback loop than that. Uh, you know, you, 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 within two clicks, you're, you're going to get to a right winger on our show. It's like, you know, this is how it works now on YouTube. Our show is left as you can possibly imagine with diverse voices and female led, like we'll suggest another show and then the next show. And then the next thing you see is you're, you're, you're in the right wing. Um, are we doing enough or could we do more or is there some sort of way of pushing back that we're not aware of um so that these companies that own these media like the, the these holdings that own the media companies um are being called out for how they they portray i mean same sideism it's it's just you know it, it, what's same side about someone wanting to live yeah yeah that's these are all really i think at the crux of I suppose to sound sort of nationalistic, what we want to be as a nation or a globe, like as global citizens, um, what is it that we we want to see in our media and how can we hold 
these big media outlets accountable, I, I really like to see the walkout at Netflix um, on um, matters of transphobia. And um, I think that it's really, really important for people to be continuously calling out. Um, but the but the reality is, is we've had such political repression against these quote unquote unpopular ideas on the left historically, right? Again, since the inception of the United States as a place. Um, and so it often people feel like they have to be so brave, even in the context of classrooms. Right now, there's a bill on the floor um, of the Wisconsin state legislature to make it, quote unquote, illegal to teach critical race theory in college, in colleges and universities. Um, well, I mean, that is what I do. That I, You cannot teach United States history without teaching about the history of racism and patriarchy. It's impossible because the the popular representation, if we want to bring it back to media, of the United States is a heteronormative white nuclear family. Yes, we are seeing changes, but we have to understand that those changes are often driven by profit. And how can we tease apart, right, that the profit, where we put our dollars, and I, divesting is, you know, one important movement, one important thing that we can do. Um, and and then what we say, you know, in in our everyday lives to those people around us, I think is really important. And encouraging people to diversify their media consumption um, as well. <laughs> I mean, Donald Trump was very effective at that. Uh, listen, he's starting his own company. And and you mentioned like people don't go out in the streets unless they feel like they're physically, there's something that, that unless you're, you know, you've, you've bought into this, this great lie so much that you feel like uh, others are a threat to you. Um, you know, maybe maybe that's ultimately what we have to do is we have to study what they're doing uh, because they're much more effective at at pushing the narrative into their granted capitals on their side. But uh, I mean, it's, it, it, yeah. These are uncharted. I think this is uncharted territory, especially with the critical race theory aspect of this. Um, they're just looking at every single aspect of society and saying, how can we eliminate any conversation, like live in an alternate reality as if there are not people of color on this planet, as if there aren't migrants on this planet, as if we, you know, I, I just don't understand how they think that we can just have a society in which we don't acknowledge the majority of humans on this planet and their stories and their plight and, and also their histories, um, including ourselves. I mean, our histories, that's what this is. Yeah. Fascinating. Um, I, I, I mean, I would, I, I, I don't feel encouraged after this conversation, but I appreciate your, your highlighting it because, um, the truth is, is that, you know, these companies are not doing even, the, even the left ones, even the ones like Netflix are not doing enough. Um, to share stories and end with a quick hopeful please yes thank you yeah so um nancy mclean professor nancy mclean right have you talked with her at all no not at all okay yeah so she wrote a book called democracy unchained and talks a lot about exactly what you said which is how organized the conservative right is Mm -hmm. and that i do think that there are there are things that we could take on the left from from the way that they've organized their movements Absolutely. Um, we should have her on, actually. Uh, very, very, very good idea. Uh, have the book. It's a great book. Everybody check it out if you haven't. Um, 
really fascinating conversation. Thank you for, for talking about it. And, um, you know, we'd love to have you back on soon. And of course, thank you to Professor Harvey Kay for recommending me too. Thank you. Thank you. I hope that you have a great day. Rest of your day. You too. You too. Thanks to Dr. Jillian Jacqueline. We will be right back after this short little break. Sunset Lake CBD is a farmer-owned company that ships craft CBD products directly from their farm in Vermont to your door. You know we love Sunset Lake CBD. They're like a stellar company. As we sit here and we talk about labor, as we talk about uh, what makes a company a, a strong company, a company that supports its workers and supports rural economies, Sunset Lake CBD is fighting all of the interests by being an amazing company, just by doing what's right. I know that sounds crazy, but your personal politics, your company politics, how you operate is a form of politics and it's a form of resistance. And so I look at Sunset Lake CBD as the kind of company that we need to see more of in this country um, because they're doing all these things right. Not only is it an amazing product, not only does the CBD do great things to your aches and your pains, uh, but they support their rural economy. They've diversified a Ben and Jerry's farm, which was a dairy farm, into being a premium hemp farm. Their minimum wage is $15 an hour, and the employees of their company own the majority of Sunset Lake CBD. On top of all that, they put their money into advertising with quality shows like our show and the David Pakman show and, of course, the Majority Report. Uh, they have all sorts of products. They have dog biscuits. There's tinctures. There's uh, lotion. They've got CBD chocolate and fudge and gummies. And they all are there to help you with your aches and your pains and tranquility. I use it all the time. I use Arnica. Uh, I have back pain. I was on a flight, a really long flight, as you guys know, uh, this week. And Sure enough, I had lower back pain because I was on this very, very, very long flight. And so I grabbed my Sunset Lake CBD lotion, which has Arnica in it as well, or excuse me, the uh, tink, the, the the salve, I should say, uh, which has Arnica in it because right away, not only did the CBD soothe my back, but the Arnica relieved the pain. Fantastic products. Every single product I've had of theirs, I could not recommend high, like seriously, every single product I've had, I'm like, okay, yeah, this is... This is the jam. This is it. And it's not only me. My family's into it now. My aunt's ordering stuff from Sunset Lake CBD. I know you guys are doing it. Uh, and if you do order from Sunset Lake CBD, make sure to go to sunsetlakecbd.com and type in Nomi, N-O-M-I, and you will get 20% off of your entire order. Sunsetlakecbd.com. Type in Nomi, N-O-M-I, and you'll get 20% off of your entire order. I'm telling you, everything is amazing. Even the food. It tastes delicious, which is kind of dangerous. Like the gummies. I can't order any more gummies because I'll eat the whole bottle. Um, but go check it out. SunsetLakeCBD.com. I don't know if, um, I've shared this with everybody, but I, uh, this summer I've, I've put this on social media this summer. I decided after intervention from several friends of mine who were just a wee bit older than me. Uh, I had a few friends say, you know, Nomi, you're in your late 30s and you might want to think about whether or not you're there yet or not. You might want to think about freezing your eggs. And I thought, okay, well, you know, this this is a few years ago. Some friends reached out to me and and they all kind of approached me separately as if they were interventions. And I was like, okay, maybe, 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 uh, sure. 
Um, and then as I approached my late 30s, uh, I decided, okay, I'm in a place where I could do this. And I found out that there are cheaper ways of doing this by going abroad, uh, which is what I did this summer. Is I went to go freeze my eggs. And I had a doctor in Greece who was very well respected, um, who was wonderful uh, helping me out with this treatment. It's not a comfortable treatment. But through the process, we discovered or he discovered, I should say, um, acknowledged that I have endometriosis, which uh, I have been asking my OBGYN for 21 years, whether or not I have it, because of a lot of different experiences I've had um, as I've matured. And for the first time ever, I it was confirmed, whereas every other time I've talked to my OBGYN, they said no. So why am I telling you this story? I'm telling you this story because through this experience, um, which did not go great, I have to admit, through this experience, I kept saying to myself and to other women who were talking through their experiences with me, why don't we know anything about this? Why am I only learning about really basic aspects of repro my, my, my reproductive system by experiencing it? And then as I talked about this with other girlfriends of mine who have had children, have not had children, gone through IVF, who have endometriosis, they acknowledge the same thing, that it's not just that we don't learn about it in school. It's that even doctors don't seem to understand our reproductive systems in a way that we should. The fact that endometriosis is actually very common and that most of the doctors I've seen did not understand it enough. So I, I, I lead with this story because our next guest, um, is is the author of Just Get on the Pill, The Uneven Burden of Reproductive Politics, Dr. Crystal uh, E. Littlejohn. She's an assistant professor of sociology at the University of, of Oregon, and her work examines race, gender, and reproduction. I was really drawn to this because I feel as if, um, you know, so much of our politics has been shaped around reproductive rights, but so little context has been given around it. And I... It's important that we have these conversations, but I also think it's really important to, in these fights, it's important to understand why we're having these conversations and what it means in gendered politics. So Dr. Littlejohn, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I don't know if you could hear my, my, my opening with mm -hmm. my little story, but I've been losing my mind <laughs> in the last you know month or two since I got, went through this experience because... I feel like I've committed so much of my political um, life to fighting for for women, for fighting for reproductive justice, and then I just had this experience where I barely even know where my ovaries are. How common is this? Am I? Is this just my little circle? No, I think it's far more common than people realize. Uh, lots of women and people can get pregnant don't necessarily know about their bodies at all. Um, and I think it is kind of baked into the way that we raise children. Uh, we don't, there's kind of this taboo thing to talk about, uh, particularly for uh, young girls' bodies. Um, and so I found that in my own research that uh, the young women that I talked about just didn't really uh, have a good understanding of how their bodies worked, how pleasure worked, how orgasms worked. And I think it's part of this broader uh, approach uh, to women's bodies where we just don't give them nearly enough information. And, and you know, you mentioned this, that in your work that, you know, we spend decades focused on how not to get pregnant. Mm -hmm. 
And and that I, I mean, that spoke to me so well. I was just like, now now I can't really get pregnant. To be honest, mm-hmm. it's it's, mm-hmm. it's um you know maybe there's there's another option, but right. I, I I feel like I woke up through this experience to and I see color in a world that I didn't know I was living in, which was black and white. Right. Um, and through that, also recognizing that like this, of course. Right to have an abortion is a political right because you know you're fighting against essentially a forced um, experience mm-hmm. by a patriarchal system, but simultaneously, a right to understanding how my body works um, and reproductive rights is 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 a political utility. It's it's something that we as a I, I, I'm just shocked that like really basic things are not being taught to us. And the fact that we are not aware, um, I, I, like, I, I guess I'm really struggling with saying this because are we too focused on the right to, you know, to control our bodies in a sense of having an abortion and not enough on this other aspect, which is just very human, like a human experience of how to have children? I love this question. I think it gets at the power of uh, reproductive justice. And so my work is grounded in reproductive justice and reproductive justice is about the right uh, not to have a child, but also about the right to have children and the right to parent uh, children in safe and healthy environments. And so what you're getting on is spot is what you're getting at is spot on this idea that people have a right to uh, understand how their bodies work. People have a right uh, to be able to have children when they want to have children and to be able to raise those children safely. Um, And the key is that the way that gender operates in our society, it fundamentally deprives some people of that option. Um, And in the conversation that we're having right now, particularly depriving uh, women and people who can get pregnant from understanding how these things work um, and understanding uh, what it means to prevent pregnancy uh, for or try to prevent pregnancy for, for 30 years. And there's so much emphasis on making sure that people don't get pregnant, uh, that as you're as you're mentioning, there's there's much less um, support for trying to help people understand uh, what are the limits of fertility, what are things they need to be thinking about, how does conception actually work? Um, I think those questions go unanswered because there's so much emphasis on trying to make sure that people don't have quote unquote undesired pregnancies, that they don't get the support that they need in all of these other areas that you're that you're bringing up. Yeah, I mean, for for my own personal situation, it's I. It wasn't like a conscious decision to not have children. It was not a conscious decision to focus on my career more than mm-hmm. the other. I think I think we as a society have politicized this in, in a sense that okay, well, you you're a career woman now, and uh, you have to make your decision. But I think many women, um, especially post recession women, are going to find themselves and are finding themselves in these experiences where it's not like you know, it was called existing. It's like, I needed to support myself. I needed to, many times these decisions are made because of the financial aspect. And you're seeing this all over the world. People are choosing to have children later in life if they decide to because of the economy. Mm -hmm. Um, But simultaneously, you're not, I I didn't know how limited my options would be in my late thirties until my friends came to me. And then I found out even more so that it was uh, much more limited. Um, Are we... Is is it always been this way? Has it? Obviously, we live in a patriarchal system, and uh, women did not have power for for most of history. Um, But has it always been this way? In that, I can't 
imagine, you know, when my grandmother was growing up in her village that the women in her community did not understand baby making, the, the world of baby making, <laughs> to make it very simple, to speak simply mm-hmm. about this. Um, is this something that like, I, I almost feel like we almost had a, my mother, for instance, you know, she did not talk about these things with me because she did not want to raise me to be in that confine of mm-hmm. this is your, so you be who you want to be in life. Is, has mm-hmm. there been sort of this reaction in history? Does that make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. That's, I think that's a great question. There, I would say there's been kind of uneven knowledge around um, how fertility works and how pregnancy works. Um, I do think that there was much more communal support for people trying to get pregnant in the past. Um, mm-hmm. There was much more uh, involvement. I love the, the um, experience that you were talking about at the beginning where you have friends uh, kind of telling you about kind of their their concerns in part because it reflects uh kind of what I would say is is part is part of the hallmark of the experience of trying to have uh, children historically, where you did have um, more support within the community uh, to try and help people understand if they're having trouble. You would have kind of elders come in and say, "Well, here's what you can try, and here's what works." And I think as um, time has gone on, because partially as, as you're discussing, because of kind of the diversification of um, our society, we don't have as much knowledge that's kind of passed on uh, via support networks. So you might have uh, mothers or or aunties or grandmothers passing on that information, uh, but sometimes that's even less common. And you, I would say we certainly don't have uh, as much knowledge within um our kind of friendship networks around how how these things work, especially because as as we're discussing, uh, people are putting off fertility longer, right? And so you might not have friends who have had experience uh, with it to try and help people understand what it's like. And I think there is, it's difficult for people to talk about not being able to have children having trouble conceiving. And so there's even less support for people when they start uh, to have challenges. And so I would say historically, um, I think that there was more communal support uh, around uh, helping people both prevent pregnancy and try to try and have children. And I do think that as our society uh, has changed over time, we do see some of that uh, kind of fading away for sure. I would, I think that resonates for me. It's interesting because, you, you know, you talk about the gender lens of, of, and cisgender, obviously we're, we're, this is a conversation about cisgender lens mm-hmm. um, of reproductive aspect, but, but, but whether it was intentional or not. I mean, who knows? Mm-hmm. Patriarchy works in a very mysterious way sometimes. <laughs> um, it's, it's almost as if instead of, of women, um, maybe the, the last wave of feminists focusing on reproductive rights and, and you know, right to have an abortion, right to have autonomy over your body. And then it's like through that and then simultaneously, you know, work equal pay. Um, obviously women are, are in the workforce full force right now, Mm -hmm. um, and bearing the consequences of the workforce. And there, there are more women in college than there are men now. Um, but through that, it's like the actual holistic part of being a woman Mm -hmm. has somehow been eliminated from the conversation. And I'm thinking, should we have, or, or should we be doing now, having conversation about what it means to be a woman so that not only women are able to talk about what is very normal for them, but men are able to talk about it too. And that it's a more holistic conversation rather than a reductive conversation. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I think it's a fascinating uh, opportunity to kind of think about what uh, it means to to be a person belonging to different gender categories, as you mentioned with uh, talking about cisgender, a cisgender lens. Um, and the way that I see it is, it is just more of an opportunity to talk about how people experience their gender identity, whatever that gender identity might be, and to think about the ways that our society enables and constrains them to live the lives that they want to live. And so when we talk about what it means to be a woman, right, there might be uh, somebody out there who wants to have children and who wants to stay at home with those children, but might feel pressured from friends who, who feel like you know, she should be out there. She should be working. Uh, she shouldn't necessarily want to stay at home with her kids. And so a definition of what it means to be a modern woman for that person might feel particularly constraining. Uh, whereas for another woman, uh, the ability uh, to have kids, but to have a job and to feel like, you know, she's trying to achieve work-life balance, uh, that might feel the kind of what it means to be a woman for her uh, might feel less constraining. And so I, the way that I think about it is to really interrogate how our gender categories uh, make it difficult for people to live the lives that they want to live. And I think if we think of it that way, then it allows us to bring men into the conversation. It allows us to bring um, trans and, and non-binary people into the conversation, because instead of assuming uh, that a gendered experience should look a particular way, right. we're being really expansive in recognizing uh, that what it means to be a gendered person and to move around the world in a particular gendered body is going to vary tremendously uh, for for people even belonging to the same gender category. And so trying to think about how social forces enable and constrain people for me is just a really uh, fascinating and important opportunity to try and figure out what can we do to help support them in living the lives that they want to live. So I, I love that question. And it's interesting because it's it's I'm you know th- through the workforce aspect I I I'm curious if in retrospect you know we should have been having these conversations obviously with 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 everyone um, not just in our isolated communities and but but simultaneously through having these conversations in our isolated communities um, it's become about a fight and through that fight, something that, you know, in, in to this day, we're still fighting at state legislative levels, um, after we've won many of these fights, we're, we're losing, a, we've lost touch with ourselves essentially right. and, and who we are and how we live as, 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 as humans on this planet, how we reproduce on this planet, how we reproduce, who mm-hmm. reproduces. Um, because my experience as a cisgendered woman is very different than other, than a man's experience, than, uh, a trans ex- a woman's experience. I mean, these are all very different experiences, but if we can't even get to the basics how are we going to have these much bigger conversations about reproductive justice when we're still essentially fighting these fights from 30, 40 years ago? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it is just really disheartening to see how we, after so many years, still just can't have honest conversations with people about their bodies, honest conversations about what it means um, to conceive, how to conceive, what it means to be struggling to conceive. I think it's fantastic that we're having much more um, open discussion about people's struggles to conceive when it comes to talking about experiences with miscarriage, right? All of this, I think, is incredibly important for helping us have a more expansive 
discussion about reproductive freedom and reproductive rights across the spectrum, right? So from uh, the ability to have an abortion as, as we started out talking about or the ability uh, to just be able to conceive, have a child um, and to be able to get the support that you need to be able to, to raise or that people need to be able to raise their children. Uh, and so it is it is disheartening for me, but I also think I'm hopeful just because people keep agitating and we keep, even though sometimes it feels like it's just incremental progress, um, mm-hmm. that is progress that that's being made, that has to be made. And the fact that people just don't give up uh, just kind of is what gives me hope to just keep doing the work and and keep moving forward. Um, how important is the pill in this fight today? The pill is, remains tremendously important. Um, one of the things that I really like to stress, uh, especially as we're talking about threats to abortion rights, uh, is that the the pill and other forms of prescription contraception can't be a substitute for abortion rights, right? Mm-hmm. People need access to abortion. Uh, in my own research, right, I find that having access to methods like the pill is incredibly important for people to be able to achieve their reproductive dreams, but they also ended up needing abortion. And so sometimes when there's this conversation around abortion rights, I feel like uh, the pill uh, can be pitted against abortion as a solution to abortion restrictions. And I think it's really important to, to recognize that the pill is one of the most important technologies that has been invented uh, in the last century. Uh, it has done tremendous work to, to be able to give people control over their fertility. Um, and so it's hands down, we say how important it is. I, I can't even put into words how important I think it is. Uh, but I think it's also just really uh, crucial that we recognize that the pill is not kind of the be all end all solution to people's uh kind of needs to control their fertility, they, we, we really need to make sure that there's access to the whole spectrum of reproductive tools uh, that they have. Um, and as we're, as we're talking about in the crux of this conversation, right, the pill and preventing pregnancy is really important, but that's not all that people need when it comes to their reproductive goals. Um, and so we also need to make sure that we are providing people with support uh, for conceiving and that we're, we're providing people with information um, and access to knowledge around infertility so that people across the spectrum uh, can make sure they have all of their needs met. And simultaneously, just just even doctors. I mean, I was I, I can't believe how limited some of the knowledge is around really basic things um, yeah. that our, our our medical community is not aware. Um, I don't know if you touch on this, but but before we go, I've, I've I've been thinking about this a lot lately. How powerful the pharmaceutical industry is, right, in in society and fighting bills and fighting against Medicare for all, et cetera, et cetera, and they're a huge stakeholder in this. There's a huge, obvious stakeholder in, in the pill, but also mm-hmm. the morning after pill. And I've just been like wondering why they don't, I don't know if you've ever touched on this, why they're not organizing um, at the legislative levels to fight against uh, these, these right-wing interests who are, are, are trying to lim- eliminate essentially um, a business opportunity for them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think there, when we get into the kind of different factions that are involved in reproductive politics, it is fascinating. I think that there um, are a number of different uh, issues that come into play. And I think even if we may not be hearing about things that are going on, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's not happening behind the scenes. And then sometimes, you know, we things come out that we didn't know people were organizing around. And so I think that it just ends up being such a divisive um, 
set of politics that I think it makes it particularly difficult for people to always know how to enter the conversation, when to enter the conversation, um, how to approach it, right? Because some of this stuff, when we start talking about funding and getting funding for things, there can all, that also gets particularly tricky with, with trying to make sure that you're satisfying your stakeholders. Um, and so I wish that there was more um, organizing publicly uh, around this, uh, but I also think that because of the different uh, issues at stake, it can also be hard for us to understand what's happening and and why it's happening in a particular way. At least that's been my experience. I sometimes see things and I'm like, I don't quite know why this is happening that way. This is kind of confusing to me, uh, but I, I just try and, and puzzle through it the as best as I can. Uh, big Pharma, unite, please, unite. <laughs> Use them as the weapon. <laughs> you just do this a little bit. All right, just get some things done here. <laughs> we'll we'll back you on this one. <laughs> also, you know, time for you to come up with some sort of vasectomy uh, campaign as well. Right, right, <laughs> right. Some other thing, other methods out there. Yeah, right, other absolutely. than turning us into like you know human petri dishes, as right. we often are. Mm-hmm. Uh, Doctor Crystal Littlejohn, really interesting conversation. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. You can check out uh, Doctor Littlejohn's book. Uh, we will have it up on screen. You can purchase it. It's the University of California Press. Uh, the title of the book is "Just Get on the Pill: The Uneven Burden of Reproductive Politics." I feel like every Friday, this is a show called Fun Fridays. I just get more and more angry and I don't know what to do. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. my life. That's exactly how I feel. You're like living in a zone. I'm like, oh my God. Oh. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. It's been Thank so, you. so fantastic talking to you. Same here. All right. We will be right back after this short break with our amazing panel, Kate Willett and Francesca Fiorentini. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. Kate Willett, learning a lot of interesting things about Kate Willett. She's the co-host of the comedy podcast, Reply Guys. She is a comedian who made her network debut on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. She has had a 15-minute special that premiered on Netflix's, Netflix's comedy lineup. And of course, she hosts Reply, Reply Guys, a leftist feminist comedy podcast. Kate, what's up? Hello. How's it going? Yes, man. I'm just going to, you know, take a second, digest that you're way bigger than the show. (laughs) (laughs) Um, All right. So this is Femme Friday, and uh, I like to talk about how women can have conversations about things that are not just related to gender. So (laughs) let's... um, Let's roll this clip because it's really important, I think, for us to recognize that there are lots of fights out there. And sometimes we amazing uh, activists need to get into the minds of our opponents. And turns out there's a leaked video that helps us understand the mind of the obstructionists in our world right now. Let's play that clip. I'm sorry. They want to get millions of uninsured people health care with my money. If I have to pay taxes on billions worth of stock gains, what does that do to the money left over for a spaceship? Breaking news, leaked webcam footage of billionaire playboy Grayson Von Trapp revealing his astronomical tax avoidance while condescending the working poor. And now, excerpts from the leaked video. Hey Cap, it's Grayson. I'm back from Dubai. I'm gonna check in on my money. It's been two days now. How much has my stock in Amazon and Facebook gone up since COVID? 10 billion. Huh, just 10, huh? All right, so what does that mean? I'm sitting at uh, roughly 110 billion now? 
All right, let me cut to the chase. I want to go to space. Outer space, that's right. I want big spaceship energy, real long, but with girth, you know? How much do you think that'll cost? <laughs> 10 billion? But that's, um, that's all my COVID cash. How am I going to... No, I don't want to liquidate the stock. Then I'd have to pay taxes on that. <laughs> I know, right? Oh, it's hilarious. Well, what if I just borrow against my profits? Powell at the Fed has things pretty set up for me. Real easy to get a cheap loan. Okay, great. Blast that off. Um, next topic, income taxes. How much were they last year? Zero. Again, perfect. Great. No, I know. My sister is working two jobs as a teacher and an EMT. All she does is pay income tax and rent. No, I don't want to give her anything. A handout will just make her lazy, okay? She really needs to pull herself up from her bootstraps. But I got to ask, so why zero income tax? I had no salary and was only paid in stock. Okay, got it. So as long as I don't sell for years, I, I pay nothing. That can't be real. Okay, great. So because I had zero income, I qualified for a child tax credit? Wait a second, man. Do, do I have a kid? No, they didn't belong to me. They were, they were just on the yacht. Uh, yeah, don't, don't worry about that. Well, that's crazy because my sister didn't even qualify for that. Oh, I love means testing. Hey, send Joe Manchin another bottle of champagne for his yacht. What? The Biden White House wants to... What the hell is a billionaire's tax? I'd pay taxes on all my stock gains every year? No, 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 no. That's what my sister does with her income. That's that's communism. It's not communism. It's, uh, what, fascism? I'm positive it's an ism. So can cinema block it? Okay, great. Send her five checks. One from the corporate PAC, one from me, you know, blah, blah, blah. And tell the Chamber of Commerce we're in for some ads. Because the whole point of being rich is not paying taxes. I mean, who's pushing this in Congress? Ugh, Wyden, Oregon. Just a whole bunch of do-gooders. What are they even planning to do with my money? Get poor people guacamole or something? Childcare and universal pre-K. Paid family leave? Well, I already have that. Medicare covering dental, vision, and hearing. You must be joking. I mean, does anybody even use Medicare? They should manufacture universal bootstrap. In fact, Peggy, let's invest or find somebody to invent. Yeah, universal bootstraps, good. There's more, fighting climate change. I'm sorry, why do they think we're building spaceships? All right, well, you know the deal. Just uh, buy a couple senators, I think we only need two, and then put out a shit ton of misinformation. Last question. If I have to pay taxes on billions worth of stock gains, what does that do to the money left over for a spaceship? So I'd have roughly $81,769,242,682. Well, let's do two spaceships then. <laughs> I know it was long, but uh, I promised our, our friends over at the PCCC Progressive Campaign change campaign committee uh, that we play that. Of course, that was David Cross, uh, who was playing, in case you didn't know, that wasn't actually a leak. <laughs> what? Yeah. I mean, the internet is very literal, so sometimes you have to disclaim Just, just the apartment alone, you're like, nope, don't buy it. Mm -mm. <laughs> I wish that was my Sorry, thought. Sorry, <laughs> David. 
<laughs> well, You're doing I mean, well, but not that, you know what I mean? It's very obvious. <laughs> hey, Francesca. He, Francesca hi. Hi. <laughs> He, he, a lot of people thought this was real, which I think is like, of course. It, you know, it speaks to the fact that it's not that far off. So, yeah. Wait, who actually thought this was real? I did not see this. It's the internet. Oh, you I, know. I saw people thinking it was real on the internet. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, sadly, my mom probably. <laughs> yeah. Well, David Cross, to be fair, is a brilliant actor. Uh, you know, very smart takes. Um, what I love about this, though, is is they've they've really kind of hit all the bases, like every single base of where we are in, in, in this fight. Um, the billionaire spaceship, you know, girth situation, the fact that they can set up multiple committees and give multiple checks through all those different entities in a way that you and I are limited. Um, when we are able to get, we can only give like $2,500 to Kirsten cinema, but of course he can do it through many different entities and family members. Um, And then highlighted the the two senators who seem to be holding everything up. Seem to be. I don't know. Um, I I woke up this morning feeling very gloomy about our prospects as a civilization, and maybe it's just the end of times, and we just have to suck it up and kind of ride the wave because it doesn't seem like Joe Biden uh, is doing everything he can to pressure Cinema and Mansion um, into you know maybe having a moral compass. Um, let's 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 do a quick. Temperature check. Kate, how are you feeling about our hopes for civilization? Um, well, <laughs> I don't think very good. I mean, uh, you know, Christian cinema is bisexual, so um, <laughs> oh, no, that's cool. Um, you know, <laughs> that pretty much summarizes everything uh, right now. Kate, yeah, you, you got mean, bits about being bi, dude. What are you? What's your take? Well. You know, I think that um, this is this wouldn't be my ideal for uh, bisexual. Yeah, Yeah, not for for a third. Yeah, it would not be my ideal for for bisexual representation. I I was, you know, kind of hoping that we could get some sort of, um, you know, (laughs) crunchy granola type buy in there. You know, maybe maybe like there's Uh, some Greenpeace activists in the polycule or but. It, it so used to be, you used to be, and then uh, very much through that old self under the bus. Yes, liberal uh, until graduation. It, it happens to a lot of <laughs> exactly. us. But yes, yeah. but she still yeah. has the purple hair. She still, she'll do that. She'll like put a little streak of purple hair, and yeah, yeah. no, that's her, her idea of bi now is bipartisan, and by bipartisan, obstructionist. Um, yes, so that's exactly. The other side of this, um, yeah. I, I do want to play this really quick because there's this thing um, that that is floating around on the internet right now. Uh, it is a video of Matt Schlapp, who I don't know if you know is the um, he's Schlapp. a spokesperson for the Democratic Party. Sure, I just uh, had to say to his name. The, Schlapp, Schlapp, Schlapp. Say it again. Schlapp, Schlapp. Everybody, cool. every Schlapp. Yeah, Matt yeah. Schlapp, Schlapp. Um, was the communications director for the RNC at one point, and now it turns out he is the expert on the Democratic Party. I am so frustrated with all these people who have literally no experience in democratic politics or organizing Tom Friedman, uh, Matt Schlapp, Donnie Deutsch, like literally the last people we should ask about what Democrats are being the authorities on Democrats. Let's play this clip. Was Manchin's reaction, um, you know, really sort of standing firm and saying, I'm not leaving the party. Well, we know exactly what he said. Um, but, you know, it, it's important because it shows that there is a place in Washington right now for that moderate Democrat. 
Yeah, unfortunately, the Democratic Party is now run by socialists, which makes it very hard for Joe Manchin, who's a traditional liberal, uh, maybe a little moderate on these energy issues. And it's it's increasingly hard for him to find a home in the Democratic Party. I don't know if I see him becoming a Republican, but if he became an independent like Senator Angus King from Maine, the question would be, would he caucus with the Democrats? Would he caucus with the Republicans? But here's the truth for every pro-business kind of moderate Democrat. Is there a home for them in this Democratic Party any longer? Thank you for that question, Matt Schlapp. Um, and he, no. He had like, he had like an how, ask how about just right? no? Just leave. I would slap him silly. <laughs> I'll Thank tell you, you that. Yeah. I was waiting for that. Kate, yeah. okay. I'm a professional, so yeah. Yes, yes. The next comedy special is just 15 minutes of slap jokes. Yeah. <laughs> the rest of the show is just slapping. Um, no, but for real, this is uh, this to me is an emblem of what we're experiencing. This is Fox News, the former RNC communications director, literally setting the debate for us. And we get sucked into it. We're doing it right now. We're getting sucked into responding to this. But it is the headlines everywhere. Tom Friedman's you know, column today is about this. Uh, the New York Times pick up, they all pick up on this. You know, it's all about what they're determining is the narrative. And mm. I don't yeah. know, Kate, I mean, is it really about him turning Republican? Is that his leverage? Or is there something else happening that we're not seeing with Manchin? Like, what does he want? Do we lose her? Kate's frozen. Is everybody? No, Francesca, your eyes are moving. Okay, Francesca, you pick it up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was just going to say, like, who cares? There is no, he's acting and voting like a Republican now. He's doing a better job than Republicans at completely transforming a once transformative bill. Biden seems to be caving on a lot of things, um, which really sucks. And honestly, I think like I'm, I definitely uh, am coming to the conclusion that um, mass action and people like, you know, the climate justice, justice folks, Native American uh, activists who've been arrested outside of the White House, Sunrise activists, like that's the way to go, actually, that mass pressure is the thing to do. Uh, Mass action is what we need more of, because honestly, we can't trust them. Democrats, even when we do mass actions to get them elected, right. uh, it's actually deliver for the American people. So yeah, Manchin, Manchin is doing nothing. It, it doesn't matter. It, it should not be a threat in the media. Of course, if they do treat it like a threat, um, they, I, I feel like I've seen them evolve in the last three weeks, like three weeks ago, they were all about bipartisanship. And now a week ago, they're, they, I feel like they're getting on board to the idea that Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin are operating in complete bad faith and that they have no intentions of helping their president their, and the president of their party to get anything done. Um, the last thing I'll say is never, ever, ever should we take any media outlet seriously or I don't want to hear a single word. I don't want to hear Tom Friedman. I don't want to hear anybody talk about Bernie Sanders yep. not being a Democrat right. ever yeah. again. Yeah, he was independent. The man, exactly, the man is, a, is the budget chair leading the charge along with the president on this on this agenda. And yeah, he's an independent. And then you've got Joe Manchin threatening to leave the party. Yeah. Get 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 out of here. Who cares? But Francesca, don't you know that um, a Democrat can't get elected in uh, in West Virginia? That that working people do not think that that Democrats represent them. That this bill actually is communism, and communism yeah. is bad for business. 
Well, Manchin's constituents absolutely hate him. Uh, I just was lucky enough to get to spend some time in West Virginia. And I mean, people like truly detest him. I think one thing (laughs) that a lot of people don't realize about West Virginia is the voter turnout is extremely low. And, you know, there's a lot of structural reasons behind that. Like uh, if you are, I think, if you're felons in West Virginia, I believe can never vote again. And like, even things like, um, like, you know, DUIs and stuff that disqualifies you from voting, which like, misdemeanor. yeah, uh, it's, you know, and a lot of people can't get time off work. It's just, it's very difficult to vote. So like a lot of the people that are voting for Joe Manchin, it's like, you know, this like really limited group of like extremely, you know, kind of right wing, people and it's not representing like Mm -hmm. people I think in West Virginia are on the whole. Um, I mean, there's a lot of, there's, there's a lot of Trump people, but there's also like a lot of like people our age and younger. I mean, people do not like capitalism, right? Because it has completely destroyed the economy of West Virginia, especially all the coal stuff and people hate this man. So it's uh, the idea that like he's doing this because of like, you know, what his constituents want versus like just his own, um, business interests are, it's it's ridiculous. Yeah. Whoever runs against him next, um, because I do, unlike cinema, who I really don't believe wants to stay in office, doesn't care. She's, I don't know, maybe she's auditioning for a spot on like the next like rocket ship that goes to space. Um, unlike her, I actually do think he wants to get reelected. So I have a campaign mm. idea for the next person who decides to run against Joe Manchin from the left. Find every single br- bridge that's broken, that's that's crumbling, every single pothole. This is like old school pothole politics. Put your sign there and say, pothole brought to you by Joe Manchin. You know, yeah. find, you got a message around this because, you know, you can't get to the polls because your bridge collapsed. Joe Manchin. Like you have to loop him in with every, I mean, this is just old school politics is you have to provide for your constituents and he's not doing it. And there's this other narrative out there brought to you by the New York Times and Fox News that he's a good Democrat and he's good for business. Well, which business? Yeah. Um, I would encourage folks, there's a there's an awesome group called West Virginia Can't Wait. Mm-hmm. And there's a, n- a number of really good groups that are like, you know, very progressive. Um, you know, they may not wear the like, Medicare for all as much on the, on their sleeve. Uh, they're more of a coalition than that, but like they, like the politics, Kate's absolutely right. It's, it is progressive. Folks have been burned by, you know, basically coal barons, you know what I mean? Like, uh, and so, so anyway, they've, they've been mounting challenges electorally, but it's been hard because you're combating a bunch of dark money. A bunch of dark money. And it's not necessarily dark money that's just coal. It's it's money coming Everything. from... Yeah. And that's I think that's part of the narrative. EpiPens. Epi, exactly. <laughs> EpiPens. His daughter. Yeah. <laughs> the, His, I think the number one employer in West Virginia is Walmart. Like, yeah. I mean, in yeah. you know, there's, there's like, a, there's a lot of healthcare jobs and then there is a lot of like, there's a lot of teaching jobs. But like, other than that, I mean, like unemployment is so high and people's prospects are so bad in a lot of cases. Um, it's, it's absolutely criminal that whoever the Senator from West Virginia is, is not someone that is like voting for every possible social safety net program. Um, Kate, I know you got to go, but, uh, you know, West Virginia shockingly is not our poorest state too. That's it's it doesn't even come in. I think in the top, you know, bottom four. 
says a lot about our country. Well, I got to run, you guys. You got to run. It's Thanks. Been, it's such a pleasure to see you. Um, yeah, uh, bisexuals forever. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'll see you guys later. Oh, yeah. All right. Thanks, Kate. Bye, Kate. <laughs> All right. I want to run a real quick uh, clip of, of Senator Sanders, Bernie Sanders, uh, talking about John Deere. I don't know if you guys know, but John Deere, there, there are people organizing. There's uh, strikes are happening all over the country right now. And shocker, it's about whether or not people are protected in their employment, are getting paid fair wages. And John Deere is just the latest example. Let's roll this clip. The chance to sit at home and, and some actual thinking time. And you think, really, what is my purpose here? Am I just to be some machine for some corporation to make money off of? And I more than share my time with my family with these companies. And for what? They wanted to, us to agree to do away with pensions for any new hires that came after us. I'm not willing to sell out uh, my future brothers and sisters that might be coming in here. It could be your kid, it could be the kid down the street. We're not interested in having our retirement plans in a Wall Street speculation portfolio. Uh, we want something guaranteed. Corporations don't want to pay their employees a fair living wage with a fair cost of living increase. Instead, they want to shift that over to stockholders and uh, the president, CEOs, and vice presidents. Over the last uh, year, our CEO's pay has gone up uh, 160%. They're projected to make between 5.7 and $5.9 billion in profits this year. That wealth was created on the back of the workers that build these products. We need a fair contract. We need it now. More U-A-W-A-W-A-W-A-W-A-W-A-W-A-W-A-W-A-W-A-W-A-W-A-W-A-W-A-W-A-W-A-W-A-W-A-W-A-W-A-W-A-W-A-W-A-W-A-W-A-
concentrate and not be distracted on like, you know, the bombast, the lies, uh, the xenophobia, and actually look at what, what is happening. Companies are threatening every single day to go to Mexico. Right. And they're not used, they're not doing it in some, you know, overtly racist way. They're just, in fact, yeah, they're just saying it. It's just, they're just being, you know, capitalists. They're just being bosses. And so I'm, I think it's not just Trump getting out of the way. Obviously it's the pandemic. It's the incessant, oh, we love our essential workers. Oh, look at these essential things. These are folks who, I mean, just like what happened in happening in uh, Hollywood over here with all the crew members who went back to work like weeks after the pandemic, after the lockdown, what, like an initial, like three weeks, maybe two weeks of locking down, tons of workers went back. I think these are the same workers who went back, who were told- yeah, you know, we've got ventilation, you wear a mask, da da da. We'll take it to your t- we'll take your temperature as if that does anything. Right. Go back to work. Uh, and not only that, have seen cuts in a time of exorbitant, you know, profit making, which is just ins- just a bad look. I mean, like it goes wonder- back to that. Go ahead, I'm sorry. No, I'm just it's just funny to me. You're like, man, if I were ever in charge of a multinational corporation and I was making, yeah, billions of profits like uh like David Cross talks about record profits, wouldn't you throw a bone? You know, wouldn't you just be like, hey, don't come after me. Here's a bone. I'm not going to cut your your retirement plan. I'm not going to cut your healthcare or dental right now. But no, they've I mean, done the opposite. It's it's crazy to me because if you look back, you know, not even 10 years ago and you see the economic collapse um, that occurred in Greece, for instance, and 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 what it started, it started with pensions. It started with pensions yeah. and then it spilled over into um, and, and pensions being cut that were tied into the Greek economy, and it was being decided on by uh, Germany, frankly. Um, so, and then similar things that are happening in Puerto Rico, where every day there's a new set of protests that all stem from the economy being in the hands of a group of people who, instead of saying let's let's tax slightly tax a corporation yep. or the billionaires who are making money off this corporation, let's slice away every single aspect of, I mean, there's going to be nothing left at the end of the day. And so when you look at a place like Greece, you look at a place like Puerto Rico, there's very little left on the table other than taxing the wealthy. And are we at that point yet? I mean, people were on the streets in in Greece, literally, uh, I mean, you could still see the effects of it. Like, like, yes, there was property damage, but it was property damage to to multinational corporations. It wasn't, you know, people's homes, banks and, and, and the companies that were completely, you know, wrecking the, the, the infrastructure of their society, which, you know, the the consequences are still there today. Simultaneously, the same happening in in Puerto Rico, uh, where their debt, was in the the hands of of other people. Um, Right. I mean, it gives us an opportunity to really talk about actual populism, right? And actual working class solidarity, again, without a distraction that will come back of right-wing populism, of that, you know, sort of, yeah, xenophobic driven uh, opposition to global capital, which never was what the globalization movement, the anti-globalization movement, the global justice movement Obviously, they were in solidarity with workers around the world because we all knew what it would mean once trade was liberalized, once, you know, uh, you could move a plant anywhere and get the Mm -hmm. same benefits, not have to pay any more in taxes, whatever, Um, you know. 
And, and so, yeah, so there's an opportunity here. Sadly, I do think that it's going to take a lot more because of just how decimated the labor movement is. I mean, you talk about Greece and Puerto Rico. I think like countries that are incredibly mobilized, you know, you know, even if they've been battered and brutalized and, and beaten down, there's also a huge legacy of resistance. And we have that here. Right. But it's been a while. It's been a while. That's right. It's there is a legacy of resistance and and a consciousness. And I feel like you know we as a society right now are just starting to gather our consciousness and flex our muscles again, our organizing muscles. And you know it's 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 as we saw with Amazon and Bessemer, it's not always going to work. And they're getting smarter and smarter, and they have more capital uh, and sophisticated ways of of breaking apart movements and you know combating um, this type of organizing, but there's a point when, you know, you have multiple sectors that are striking across the country at the same time where, you know, you can't, you can't play whack-a-mole anymore. It's the consciousness is growing. The income inequality is so vast. And like you said, you know, now that it's not about electoralism, it's about, um, survival after the pandemic. My concern is we're about to go into electoral season again. And because we don't have this infrastructure bill passed, because the PRO Act has not been passed, um, because we're, we're the, the, the show that Mansion and Cinema have created, and Cinema in particular, I think hers is much more about the sh- a show than actual agenda, where I think right. Joe Manchin does have a real agenda. Um, Joe Biden and the Democrats aren't going to have anything to run on. No. And, and this is the same, you know, it's the same thing that like, I remember John Stewart said, you know, when you can't get anything done, you get demagogued, you know, and a lot of folks are drawing those parallels between the Obama years and what's going on under Joe Manchin in terms of allowing not just Republicans, but allowing Democrats to stymie your sort of sweeping agenda, allowing them to take away the public option on the ACA. So here we go again. And are we going to get demagogued? Yeah, and I, I we we cannot allow that to happen. Well, I mean, do, do our tactics have to change though? You start off by saying the organizing in front of the White House is is what we have to do. Yeah, I hate to be a pessimist, but I'm almost like, no, we have to do something. We had the largest protest in history, two of the largest protests in history, back to back, the Women's March and 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 and, uh, and of the course Black the, the, the Black Lives Matter. Yeah. yeah, and what has happened? Zero. Yeah. If anything, mm-hmm. more rights have been taken away from both of these communities. Yeah. And I'm I'm concerned that we're not – they know what what it what has to happen in terms of when people mobilize. Like, it doesn't matter. It, I feel like they're just tuning it out. They're just tuning out the mobilization just like, you know, just like Joe Biden and Donald Trump tuned out the fact that they had real allegations potentially against them, Me Too allegations. They didn't even acknowledge them, yeah. barely acknowledge them. Yeah. And they're just like – going forward that business as usual are we no. like is there something we're missing do we have to re-strategize no i think that the, that's a really good point i also think that you're talking about you know unlike labor right there is not a a women's sadly there is not like a broad and and same with the black lives matter movement there aren't like broad-based organizations that are in lockstep that have an agenda forward. Yes, there, you know, there's the movement for black lives. Um, yes, there's like places, things like BLM Los Angeles, which have done an incredible job on a local level in terms of, you know, getting politicians out and getting, you know, better ones in, but like, it needs to be much more coordinated and massive. And of course, whenever that happens, you know, then it, then it gets cracked down, especially on the streets. And you're 100% right. I'm not saying street action is the only way to go here. But I do feel like when there's a certain amount of inaction in Washington, 
I mean, I don't know what is left to do. And I think something that is easy, easily accessible, more accessible to a lot of people is actually organizing and yeah, and taking it to the damn streets. Um, and we'll see that, you know, I, I disagree that like the women's March was a, a lib pussy hat movement. You know, I was there in DC. Oh, I agree. Yeah. I mean, with you, I should say. Yeah. 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 And I think that, I think we all have that critique that yes, there were people in the coordinating committee who were like more on the liberal to like moderate spectrum. Um, but it, it was a movement, you know, and it can be conjured again. And I do hope that I hope it happens. And I think it will happen. Um, cause we're getting pummeled where we really are. I mean, ugh. so yeah, man, I don't, I mean, I'm curious because you're the one who, you know, you know, a little bit more about sort of the wheelings and dealings. And it's like, yo, if we come out of this and we've stripped universal pre-K, mm -hmm. uh, we've stripped two-year community college, um, you know, we've stripped the child tax credit, what is left? Is there, it's just a little bit on climate change. Is that worth it enough? What if nothing has changed on climate right. and it's all there? That's I right. mean, maybe that's enough. Maybe may I go forward. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not ready to say it's all bad and burn it all down. But at what point does this start to become really not enough for the people who it needs to be enough for or a lot for? And I, I don't know what's going on behind the scenes um, in Washington behind closed doors right now, but at least the appearance from the outside, which I do think is important, is I don't feel, I personally don't feel, and I am, you know, understanding the dynamics of, of, of power structures in DC, but I personally don't feel as if the progressives are, are, are sharpening their weapons enough against the neolibs. I feel like they, and maybe this is, I, I think that this is being the sentiment of a lot of folks who put mm. a lot of faith into the progressive movement, um, in Washington right now is we're getting rolled again. Um, hmm. the way that, you know, we did in the presidential primary, the way that we did, uh, we were in the DNC chair fight. Um, there were these, the, I can say for one, through my experiences working behind the scenes on some of the stuff, there is always a last minute move by the establishment to just sort everything. They ride, right. they ride along. Yes, yes, yes. We're for progress. We are for reform. We hear you. We'll bring you to the table. You're on stage with us. Uh, you know, solidarity. And then, oh my God, there's this one person who's holding everything up and we just can't seem to negotiate. They're the bad guy in this situation. Mm -hmm. um, or, you know, the DNC chairs race, there was a last minute move, you know, literally last minute. Uh, in the presidential primary, there was a last minute move. And if there's only one thing I can say is we have to be prepared for their last minute moves. Sure. Yeah. They'll, the a call from Obama and it'll all yep. be changed. I mean, I think that's, it's really interesting though. Cause I, I keep on thinking, you know, <laughs> I think we all have Donald Trump's little disgusting voice in the back of our head somehow being like president Joe Manchin telling president Biden what to do. Like I have that. My cat does not like that act out. <laughs> um, not that impression. Like I feel that in the back of my head and that's how I like, I agree. I'm like, you are going, you're, you're not only going to roll progressives, but then you're going to get rolled by the electorate for looking weak. Let's be real. When you set on an agenda, then you look super weak by not even getting your own party to get on board to pass it. And that's the other thing. And I, I mean, and that's how you realize like, man, the Senate is just, is, is just where, like where souls go to die. Right. It's just that's hearts right. turn to dust because <laughs> I, I was, you know, <laughs> I've been talking about this this week where, 
in Republican spheres, Republicans want to rein in the cost of, let's say, pharmaceutical drugs. They know, especially I was there was a state representative in Utah who's like, we're getting completely like gouged by these prices and our state employees. I don't want to keep paying, you know, two thousand dollars a pop for a Humira dose or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So they've got these plans where they send folks to Mexico, which is obviously crazy, but actually cheaper right. than buying it in the United States. And Bernie and Republicans have been on that same page of just at least let us buy far uh, you know med- medicine meds from from Mexico or Canada and oh no 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 that's somehow seen as terrible but it's interesting because a lot of republicans are on board with that right. then you get to the senate and it's like no sorry i've taken way too much pharma money for that that's right it's 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 i i, I talked to a doctor a couple of days ago and she she was talking about how um, she's had to raise like so many different folks in different industries have had to raise their, their um, prices on on uh, their products because of this supply chain issue. And she right. says she's like, you know, I have a supply chain issue with this pharmaceutical that I have to prescribe. And she's like, but even through that, even the parts are tied into the pharma industry, which I didn't understand. Yeah. She's like, no, like it's not. She's like, I am not beholden to pharma, but to be able to give. XYZ um, procedure, I have to have the parts that are attached right. to that pharmaceutical. And right. so the pharma, the, the cost of the pharmaceutical is going up, but then the parts are going up as well. And she's like, and then as a result, I've had to raise my prices. And so the entire industry is going to become even more bloated than it already is. It's really interesting to kind of see how supply chain is going to, while our wages are low. So yes, stick to the streets uh, if you are able to, to, to work with the union or not. Um, organize, organize, organize. Our labor seems to be the biggest uh, tool we have at this moment. I mean, yeah, if we need to invest in um, West Virginians and, you know, the organizing there and in Arizona, so yep. be it. Let's do that. Yep. Francesca, who's on your show this week? Me. <laughs> oh, my God. Speaking of uh, the economy, Doug Henwood uh, is on with me as well as comedian Nato Green uh, talking all about, yes, this labor movement is, are we going to, is it the 30s all over again? No, I don't know. Is it the... 70 went anyway are we gonna make it stick very excited to talk to him and uh yeah uh listen to the habituation room podcast or watch it at franny joe on youtube god and, and what's your cat cat's tail. name the cat ramona tail. ramona you are your comedic timing is perfect perfect comedic timing oh my god <laughs> <laughs> we started what? the show off with my poodle and we're ending it with I love that. I love that. Thanks for joining. See you, Nomi. Nice to see you. Take care. All right. Thank you to everybody for watching Fem Fridays. We love you. Uh, Make sure to check us out on Monday on Rockfin, uh, rockfin.com slash Nomi Key. We go live at 8 p.m. on Tuesday. Excuse me, not on Mondays. What day is it? I don't know the days of the week. Tuesdays, we have a little thing. We can just like put it up there and it'll challenge my thought. Tuesdays, we are live at 8 p.m. for TNS Live. Uh, on rockfin.com slash nomiki and of course check us out on Wednesdays on every other platform we have a great week next week stay in solidarity thank you to all of our guests today the nomiki show Clash momentarily for class solidarity. Cash circulating, give the masses back its currency. Greed from elites, oligarchs, stay fed. Deep state, faith fed. Everybody break bread. Racism, homophobia, sexism, religion in this melted pot. We live in time to build a new system. Unionize labor rights. Highlight the issue. Talking heads left is best. The saga continues. Continues. The No Miki Show.